you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. The host is riding from Knocknarea and over the grave of Clutnabeer, Clutje tossing his burning hair and Niam calling, Away, come away, empty your heart of its mortal dream. The winds awaken, the leaves whirl around. Our cheeks are pale, our hair is unbound. Our breasts are heaving, our eyes are a gleam. Our arms are waving, our lips are apart, and if any gaze on our rushing band, we come between him and the deed of his hand. We come between him and the hope of his heart. The host is rushing twixt night and day. And where is their hope or deed as fair? Kludje tossing his burning hair and Niam calling, Away, come away. You were listening to the hosting of the Seth by Yetz. In this week's episode of AI Ready Healthcare, I had a chat with Professor Shuo Li about the question that is in everyone's mind, how will Mikai 22 be? Will it be virtual? Will it be in person? How the entire experience of Singapore will look like during a pandemic? So without a further ado, we move on to today's episode. Welcome to the fourth season of AI Ready Healthcare. We are recording on a cold December afternoon here in Germany. I'm your host, Anirbun, and it is my pleasure to warmly welcome our guest for today, Professor Shuo Li. Professor Li is the founding director of Digital Imaging Group at Western University, London, Canada. He's a senior member of the Mikhai Society with his research focus on machine learning for medical data analytics in general. Also, he is the general chair of Mikai 22, which we are really looking forward and hope that it would be a live or at least a hybrid event. But let's see how the corona pandemic goes forward in the coming months. So I'm really looking forward to an engaging conversation for the next hour or so with Professor Lee, whom I will just call show for the sake of simplicity. So welcome to the podcast show. Thank you for inviting me. It's really my honor to talk to you and hopefully talking to a lot of Mikai people through this recording. Perfect. So I guess the first question, our tradition is always about becoming. So how was your years of becoming the 
scientist you are now, your early days of research, and maybe even earlier. So maybe a good quick summary of that. Sure, sure. It's a long story, but interesting story. I actually grew up in China on a medical university campus, and most of my family members choose their careers in medicine. I actually got a bachelor degree in software engineering in China, and then I came to Canada for a PhD degree in computer science. After that, I was hired by GE Healthcare, General Electric Healthcare. That was 2006. Uh, during my time in GE, I earned a placement working side by side with physicians in hospital. In 2015, I went back to academia as an associate professor. So as a search, my background included cleaning industry and the academic experience. And then my research incorporated science, engineering, and healthcare. So this background is really good gives me a lot of advantage to lead multidisciplinary research, which is kind of very important, the AI in healthcare in general, and in Mika in particular. Thank you so much. That's really a great quick summary. And you touched a very important topic that this trident of making machine learning into the clinic is about the clinic itself in the technology and also really the transfer of technology from the university campuses to the real industry. That's, that's really an important thing. I guess I have a sort of follow-up question. Because you have a lot of family members who are clinicians, doctors, I guess it was quite easy for you to have a conversation about technology to clinicians, which most of our young scientists, they are not very privileged of. So can you give us some initial ideas of how they should communicate about technology to clinicians? That's right. Mika is a typical, what do we call a multidisciplinary research area. And we are particularly interested to know what a physician wants, because that usually gives us a lead to on the direction we should work on. We know that a lot of researchers that work on pure theoretical science, and that's fine. That's the foundation of our research today. But Mikai is interested in technical development, innovations that, that has potential to translate into bedside. Therefore, it's very important to talk to clinicians to know what's important to them, because after all, they are the end users. I'm really privileged that I had spent almost 10 years side by side with a physician, not just from my family connection, but with the professional connection in the daily life with a physician. That gives a lot of advantage. So I know how do they think. Almost every single project we had in the last 10 years are actually originally inspired by physician. We know this is important, but there's one thing that key is uh, you need to include the physician at the beginning of your project. So, which means that from the start, you need to know this, your research direction aligns on the right direction. At the same time, I have to give a little bit of warning here because the physicians are dealing with a lot of daily life practice. So our research needs to slightly higher than the daily life because it's the research. It's not a dealing with IT issue. It's not a dealing with the usability issue. It's a dealing with the research issue. So after a very deep discussion with a physician, 
we need to understand what's the research value of the discussion, where it aligns with each other's interests at the same time, along with the right interest of the area. That's the few things that young researcher needs to learn. It took me a while to figure that out. But once you figure that out, you will find that you will have a limited number of ideas, projects to move forward. Yeah, thank you. I, I guess this is something that comes quite often in this podcast that those of the more senior members of the Mikhail Society and even beyond who are rather successful, they always had this understanding of who is the end user and thinking with that cap on about the technology. So technology is a solution rather than a problem. And I guess in the recent years with the pandemic and the number of AI papers that were turned out to be useless from the pandemic, that probably underlines your suggestion that you should talk to the clinicians first, communicate continually rather than do something and say the physicians, do you think this is useful? Of course, most likely that's useless. But that's really a good point that you have made. So I guess for the podcast, whoever is hearing this podcast, the biggest question they have in mind is to the Mikai 22 general chair, will it be a virtual in-person or a hybrid conference? That's really a good question. We have been preparing an in-person conference. Actually, many Mikai people have approached us to suggest that Mikai 2022 should be an in-person conference. Because after two years of pandemic, people just want to meet each other in person. They want to talk to each other face-to-face. You know, they, are, they said that they are tired of virtual conference. Of course, many things beyond our control. Right? As you know, we are in the face of what they call the fifth wave. So it's very difficult to predict the future. But at this moment, we remain positive. We are closely monitoring the situation. We will reach our final decision in May because we believe that the situation should be much clearer to make the final decision by then. Wonderful. Like many, I'm also looking forward to a real in-person Mikai conference. We didn't have that since Shenzhen. So this is really high time that we do that. So I guess a lot of our listeners are from the Western world. So from North America or from Europe, many parts of the Europe. And for them, I guess Singapore is a sort of new destination for Mikai. So in case it's an in-person where finally we can just be there, what can they expect from a Mikai in Singapore? Mikai 2022 in Singapore will carry on the Mikai tradition with improvement and innovations. As always, as you know, people can expect to see state-of-art research and interesting presentations. Mikai 2022 will also make new efforts to help our junior scientists with their career development. We will continue and strengthen our connection with clinicians. We already have a few events uh, planned. We also have included the direct involvement from Asian clinicians, which is kind of new for Nimikai. In, in fact, some of those clinicians have been included in our organizing team. We will also create a new platform to engage industry. We are putting more emphasis on the clinical translation as we just mentioned, Mikai is a tech innovation, but also want to focus on the clinical interest. Um, we will spotlight our uh, Young Scientist Award nominee 
in the past that Young Scientist Award was nominated but not being highlighted, we feel that it would give them a new opportunity. It will give us an opportunity to, to know their work if we highlight it. Uh, we will have a new discussion on the AI in a while. So these are the scientific part, as I just mentioned, that we will carry on the Mika tradition, which is state-art research and new engagements with industry and strengthen the in connection with the clinicians. But also don't forget, Singapore is a great place to visit. If this is an in-person meeting, people will expect to see more social events and they can expect that too. We already get that planned out and it will be announced after May if it is in person. So while people can enjoy the scientific content on Mika 2022, they can enjoy a very pleasant holiday in Singapore. So I guess you mentioned many, many interesting topics. One of the interesting themes that sort of came out is that Mikai had at some point probably a little bit of a feel that it's sort of taking the methods from computer vision, machine learning literature and try out in, in the medical data and then you get a Mikai paper. So when you really emphasize the fact that Mikai is not about, let's say, just copy pasting Python codes from somewhere else, but really, really clinically focused, translational focus is also very core of Mikai and how you are emphasizing that in the program. I'm really hopeful that Mikai will find a lot of, I guess, new engagements with our clinicians, with our industry. And of course, the social events are really great, but I guess out of curiosity, how many sleepless nights are you planning to spend in the coming months? Yes, that's actually a very good question. And as you know, organizing a conference like Mikai is actually very challenging. It's very interesting, but very challenging. Interesting because you got to put things together. And we always think that Mikai is a platform. The conference is a platform. The platform for our members, our attendants to present themselves to each other, for them to share, for them to communicate. But of course, putting together such a platform, it takes a lot of time. We do this with passion, and but it takes a lot of time. It's not just me. It's the whole organizing team from program, from industry connection, from clinical side, and from local committee, from global committee, so that we already get all this committee formed out. We have regular meeting. Everything so far so good. And we just need to wait for the May to announce whether it's in person then, as you know, in-person, hybrid, and pure virtual, there are three different lanes. So fortunately, we have a very excellent conference vendor working with us, uh, Daycon. Daycon is a wonderful, wonderful uh, PCO for us. And uh, they would work with the local venue, which is in Sentosa. So we haven't booked the Sentosa, the resort yet. But on May, we already negotiated all the details. So we will put our signature or say no on May. And by then, then we would announce whether this would be a hybrid in person or virtual. But no matter in which form, Mika 2022 will be a very interesting event for everybody. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I, I mean, I can also say great things only about Decon. I was involved in the organizing of this year's Mikai 21, which is almost like ending in four days. <laughs> but yeah, so we saw the transition between whether it will be a virtual or uh, in-person. And then it was really, really troubled 
situation and they handled it quite brilliantly. So I can imagine Mikai 22, whichever way it goes, it will be a very successful event for all the contributions that you and your team and Dick and all of you are putting in. Mikai is more of a platform. So a conference is an annual event, but Mikai goes on, I guess, year round. And now we have more conferences which are around Mikai. Plus, there are also other engagements. So you have been involved in Mikai for decades by now. So can you give us some idea of the, the, the major transitions that you have seen over the, let's say, decades of Mikai's existence? Sure. Perhaps the biggest transitions are from small conference to big conference, from just a conference to a society. My first Mikai was Mikai 2003. So think about it, it's almost 20 years. At that time, we had around five or 600 attendants. Since then, Mikai has quickly grown to have more than 1,000 attendants. And Mikai 2022 has, I believe, around 2,500 registration. So the conference is getting bigger and bigger. And before COVID, we actually expect that Mikai Singapore would have 3,000 attendants. Many people didn't realize that, but Mikai is no longer just a conference. In 2003, Mikai was just an annual conference. And then later, Mikai was incorporated as a nonprofit organization, meaning society, a fast-growing society. The annual conference serves all its attendants. The society serves all the members. Society focuses more on the area, the future of our area, the future of our society members. So those transition, major transitions brings opportunity at the same time, the challenges. I really agree on the fact that Mikai is getting bigger. Of course, 3000 is a massive number. I can only imagine how big of a conference event that would be if it really happens in person. But the other point that you said about young scientists and making Mikai more of an inclusive society, we had Leo Josquist in our third season. And he also talked about the similar fact that we are becoming more inclusive no matter which part of the world you are in, as long as you are doing research in the medical image analysis, computer-assisted intervention, this is really your home. That basically means you have a massive audience of young scientists who are, let's say, climbing the initial steps of the Mikhail ladder to be more involved in the society. So can you tell us something about these two decades of attending and doing excellent Mikai research? What are three or so main factors that remained constant to be really successful in Mikai? Sure. As you said, we're getting more and more young scientists into Mikai from all over the world. They are climbing the ladder in Mikai. They also climb the ladder in their career. From my personal experience, I believe that there are three factors. Go deep. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Young researchers are attempted to publish faster and faster for the number. But in the, many people didn't realize in the long run, it, it may not give you any advantage. This is not really a good practice. It's a lot easier if you can focus at the beginning, go deeper. At the beginning of your career, find a very interesting question and focus on it do a good and a high impact research that will make your foundation of future very solid. Then another two factors are the 
as Stephen Jobs often said, stay hungry and stay foolish. So this is particularly important for the young researcher, not necessarily students, but a young researcher who already gained certain success. For example, successfully defended the thesis and landed the first job. Stay hungry usually means that you put, keep pushing yourself, right? Stay foolish means that keep trying challenging things. Over the years, it has been quite sad for me to see some young and really very talented researcher decide to stay in their temporary comfort zone and or be satisfied about one or two success of their career. I understand, I fully respect that their personal decision, but I strongly believe that they will become much more bright researcher if they stay hungry and stay foolish. I see. I mean, what was really interesting is that the first part of going deep versus the second part of stay hungry and stay foolish are sort of covering, I guess the first one is more about the depth of the research. And then the second part is more about the breadth of the of the research. So you probably as a PhD, the first chance you have to dig deep, but uh, uh, like, as you said, once it becomes your comfort zone, you have to get out of that rabbit hole and try other things as well. I guess I have a sort of a practical question associated with it. So let's imagine maybe a PhD student who joined a young PI's group. Now, the young PI needs to publish, otherwise he or she gets perished. And that basically means uh, he or she will push the young PhD to publish more and more. So this is sort of exactly, I guess, opposite to what you suggested as the success, like what really is being, means a long-term success. So how do we really deal with this dichotomy of situation? This is a very good question. It's a very challenging to get the right answer to it. As you said, that a new student joining a young PI's lab, a young PI is under pressure to have tenure, and therefore, he needs the number. But this is precisely what I told at the beginning that this PI is creating a culture that against his long-term goal, which is he wants to do good research. They want to go deep or go broader. But anyway, not just for number, but also really for the quality of the paper. There's no unique and there's no right or wrong answer for that. I guess you do need to publish in that phase of the life, but you do also need to keep that in mind that this today is just one step towards your career. Your career is going to last 10 or 20 years, right? So temporarily get a one paper publisher will give you certain joy, but in the long run, the long, it's not too long. In six years, people are going to look back to say, yes, you published X number of papers, but is anything good coming out from it? Right? So we are not saying that don't publish because anything published would bring certain value to the society. And hopefully some students or latecomer would be able to pick up some useful information from your knowledge. But do keep that in mind because every step, every, if you focus on your long-term goal, this long-term approach will eventually bring the success to you for today or tomorrow. I see. So that's really wonderful. Sort of having a long-term view always is helpful rather than trying to maximize the short-term profit because that might hurt you in the longer run. I guess it's really difficult to achieve the balance, but if you can achieve that, then you are really 
successful uh, researcher in the longer run. Yeah, so that's really, uh, I guess, good advice for all the young PIs and the stu- PhD students, master students who are really joining the Mikhail Society in these pandemic situation, especially. So I guess we are coming to the second part of the podcast where we move from more general things to the more specific things. And there we come to your research and your research focus in the last few years, etc. But maybe if you can give us a sort of, because you have a very interesting sort of, how to say, sandwich, career, academia, then industry, back to academia. And I guess that really put your vision in certain sorts of problems that are important to solve. So can you give us some guiding principles of how you chose the particular directions that you chose? So far, I want a good research. There are many definitions of good research. The good research, in my mind, needs to solve a critical clinical problem. And this clinical problem needs to be a bit more advanced than the current career, uh, current area, so that this clinical problem would provide a certain push for the area to grow and move forward. So. I summarized my research into innovative machine learning for creative clinical applications. Well, this precisely describes what I do. As you know, I come from computer science background by training, and then I work with clinicians for, for clinical research. So basically, that is the summary of my mentality. How do I break the barrier between these two sides, and but also leading the research in these two areas. By leading, I don't mean that I'm more advanced than other researchers, but I'm providing the directions for these two areas to work together. So for example, one of our uh, recent research is the AI contrast enhanced image. That's, that is generate a synthetic uh, contrast enhanced image to replace the chemical contrast enhanced image. The chemical inject into the human body has many safety concerns and cost concern. So that by using AI tools to generate those synthetic image, we're able to remove all this safety concern. We're able to reduce all the cost. This is a very high impact research in the clinical world. But also at the same time for the machine learning area, the existing method may not able to directly apply to it. And at the beginning, when we start, we did try all the machine learning tools that allow us to get some promising results. But once we push this clinical need deeper and deeper, because we are actually looking for a machine learning tools that is able to generate a very realistic AI contrast image to replace the chemical contrast image. This also, at the same time, push the machine learning deeper and deeper. So this gives you a good idea, one example, that how we innovate fundamental machine learning to create creative clinical applications. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Yeah, I was basically looking at uh, the recent research that you are doing, let's say, past few years, and you wrote a lot of papers around the general theme of, I guess, adversarial learning, generative modeling, generative adversarial networks. And now it's clear why you are planning to do that because if you can synthesize these sort of images from data 
where you don't need to push a contrast in in human body that saves uh, uh, like that that has a lot of interesting aspects in terms of the safety concerns and of course the cost i guess the question that whenever we are talking about synthesizing information in a statistical way we always have is about the training data and the bias in the training data and how my, that might impact in the synthetic image so do you have a sort of I don't know, a quality assurance mechanism that basically says that with what you are looking at is actually realistic or not? That's, that's a very, very good question. So at this moment, this is ongoing research, right? As you just mentioned, that there's a generative model at Restoring Learning that gained a lot of success in generated the synthetic image for natural images, right? But those images, they don't have a practical use. That's computer vision. People created those tools. But once you want to translate those tools to the clinical world, where we look at the reliability, we look at the other you know, factors, reliability, for example, and security, all these factors of this tool, then we have a much higher or deeper levels of the requirement, then the question comes back to how do we innovate this fundamental concept in order to meet the clinical requirement. The question you just mentioned is one very good question, is when you generate the synthetic image, how do you prove to your end user this is actually true, right? This naturally combined with another category of research we are currently doing is called explainable AI or trustable AI, right? This explainable or trustable AI is not trying to create explainable neural network structure. This is a focus for a lot of research in machine learning. They try to create a machine learning structure that explainable to other people. But the explainable model we are creating now is not trying to explain the network structure, but explain the confidence or the evidence in the clinical world, people use to call the evidence-based diagnosis. Physicians look at the image and then they say, oh, this is evidence that for certain disease, right? It's still an educated guess, it may not be true, but at least it has evidence. So our trustable AI, explainable AI, is tracking all this evidence that matches the physician's knowledge, common knowledge, educated knowledge, or their clinical experience and putting all these things together, and then basically just draw their attention to all this evidence, and at the same time present the final decision. So the physician is able to validate this final decision with all the evidence we present. So we call that evidence-based AI. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I guess that this makes total sense of why with a generative modeling, explainable AI would be an important topic. I mean, this is, I know, a very hot topic, but probably you would also agree. I mean, you sort of intuited in your explanation that you are not going into the pretty picture heat map generation part of the research, even though that's a big part of explainable AI, but you are bringing more into the actual explanation that makes sure that the synthetic image is more close to reality. So I guess whenever I hear about explainable AI, I'm I'm not a researcher in that field, but I just think of the fact that often people don't talk about the user. So based on the user, 
if you are really talking about the explanation to a general physician versus an oncologist, the explanation would probably be different versus if it's a patient support group or if it's a, like the FDA or CMOX. So all the explanations, the granularity is very different based on the user. So can you probably give us some intuition of what level of granularity is good enough for your particular research that you are doing? Sure. As you said, you are not trying to explain the network structure or other things to the research. You are explaining the principle, rational evidence to the end user. In our case, the end user is a different levels of clinicians or different disciplines of clinicians or in uh, uh, hospital administrators. So I give one very simple, for example, the weather forecast, right? So the not explainable AI is to say tomorrow there is a possibility for rain. And, and sometimes they give you, um, they could even give you a quantitative measurement, say 80% there is going to be rain and it will have two or centimeters rain, right? But that's not explainable because uh, the people will either accept it or say, oh, that's, uh, you know, possible. But if you could explain a little bit more than that, for example, a lot of weather forecasts that these days would do is there is a very cold air from north. In Canada, would say you really come from Canada or, or North Pole, right? So there's also a very humid and warm air from Florida. The air moving up and, uh, and this move down. And we, based on the speed of their moving, we expect that this weekend is going to hit each other on the top of London, Ontario, my city. Right? So, and then our computer uh, model generated has analyzed this calculation history has indicated that 80% of the chance that this will have rain, this 80% is based on the previous history, right? And based on the volume of the water they carry, our computer has estimated there will be two centimeters of rain. So that is a very simple idea of explainable AI. You are not trying to tell them what your computer model is doing, but your you matches or explains the evidence that normal people can understand and explain the rationale to it. Yeah, that's really wonderful. A really, really good example of using another field's the interdisciplinary approach to take this weather forecasting as a sort of explanation-based thing and bringing it to the AI for healthcare uh, research. Um, I guess I had a sort of follow-up question around the problem that you said. So one of this is, of course, the synthetic generation of contrast-enhanced images, how that would look like. But I can imagine you have done a lot of work on cardiac imaging and cardiac MR as well. And one of the big problems of cardiac MR is this breath hold and how the patients people request them to breath hold, but these, if they have arrhythmia, they can't really do breath hold. And then you end up getting images that don't necessarily look as good as it was when you did it on controlled healthy patients. So do you see any possibility of this sort of generative modeling synthesizing might be helpful in cardiac MR of the clinics? My answer is absolutely positive. I haven't done any research in that area. In fact, I haven't done much on the breast holding or breast free um, MI myself. Um, but I was involved in one big project that, that dedicated to that direction. From what I see, that yes, 
the answer is absolutely yes. Now the question is how do we actually innovate those generative models in order to make that happen? A lot of understanding from our field is we get a generative model applied to this question and get the answer to solve that. So this is good if you are lucky to get that kind of solution. But a lot of time that this solution is not there because these tools were created for very different purpose, right? So in order to use for your purpose, you actually need to go into this machine learning tools and to modify, to innovate, whatever you need to do, just need to adopt it or whatever, but you need to go inside and change the things within inside in order to solve the problem we have from the clinical world. That matches what I said, that innovative machine learning for creative clinical applications. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful. Uh, we can move on to the next sort of questions I had. And this was really interesting because often I hear from industry personnel or the academia, but you have made this sort of journey of you are an industry insider doing research in G healthcare for almost a decade, and then you came back to academia. So can you probably give us, I don't know, three critical components that we really have to pick to make sure we have a successful academia-industry collaboration in healthcare AI? Sure, sure. Academic-industry collaboration in MECA is actually quite common. But my experience, my background um, as a GE scientist for like 10 years, it does give me a lot of good advantage to collaborate with industry. We actually collaborate with quite a number of industries. In academia, we do collaboration all the time, collaborate with your colleague next door, collaborate with other departments. Uh, but academic industry collaboration is slightly different from those uh, multidisciplinary collaboration because uh, each side has a very different thinking. Therefore, there are several actually critical components, but top three, what I think from my experience are the collaborative mindset, profitable gap, and inclusive process. So the first one is the collaborative mindset. This one is very important because people usually say that if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. The, this one, everyone understands, but the collaboration with academic industry needs to formulate it because both sides has expertise and available technology that is complementary from each other. So when we formulate those kind of collaboration, we need to keep a collaborating mindset there. We need to understand, even though that industry academic are not in the same campus, not on the same building, maybe not in the same city, but you are a team. So this collaborative mindset is the first thing and, uh, and the very important that defines how far you can go for this kind of collaboration. A second one is the identify a profitable gap to work together. That's what I think is the foundation of academia and industrial collaboration. Academic people focus on academic findings, high impact research, but industry by definition, they're profit driven. So there are many problems we can work on, but industry by definition, by their mechanism is driven by profit, meaning that they will naturally pick up the, the problems that if solved will bring them profit, right? So academia people, researcher, before they approach any industry, they need to think what's the commercial side or commercial value 
of their knowledge or their technology. Once they have that in their mind, it will make the discussion with industry much more productive. The third one is the last but not least is a really inclusive process. I kind of touched that at the beginning because mindset and the process, these two are the two slightly different things, but they're really connected. So even though some people has a collaborative mindset, if the process itself is not inclusive, it's not going to happen because as I just mentioned, industry and academia usually are far apart. And if you're lucky, there are your industrial park near you. But most of the time, they're from different cities. If you want to work with uh, the uh, uh, international corporation, that's even more complex. But you somehow have to deal with this. Uh, the process has to be as same as you collaborate with your colleague next door. So you need to involve in each other in the daily practice, weekly meeting, monthly meeting. Because this is hard. Because uh, it's like two groups of people are working in two different pace. Industry people working in one phase, academic people working one phase. So how do you synchronize them? That's another very important thing should be considered in the process. And once you get all these three things sorted out, I'm pretty sure that the collaboration will become very successful. And then you as a team, we will be able to go a bit further than you know separate. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think I totally understand what you are saying. And But these are really, really critical and I guess at the same time hard to do because we have a different incentive systems between academia and industry. Just to follow up the last point, so of course the profitable gap and a collaborative mindset, those has to happen. But if both sides have those, then also things go, let's say, missing in terms of communication. Now that the pandemic has happened and people are getting more used to this sort of remote meeting, etc., do you think this will actually open up a better chance of actual collaboration even when you are not geographically close by to your industry partners? The answer is yes, but the tools we are using now is getting better, but it was available at 10 years ago, right? Zoom is getting better when you have a lot of people together. They're getting better and better, even just over the last two years, right? But there was a similar tools, WebEx, for example. When I was in GE 15 years ago, we used WebEx to talk to our collaborator. We used TCOM. We use all these tools already. So the fundamental tools are there, right? It's the mindset. It's the process. It's the technical gap we are looking at are still are missing from those things. Of course, today's tools were getting better, so it'll help us to smooth out the process, but the mindset is the key. I really hope that by your effort of bringing more industry, more clinicians into the Mikai Society and Mikai 22 in particular, that would be one way of also seeing that how we can have a profitable sort of gap that can benefit on both sides. So really wonderful there. Uh, I'm really looking forward to see what happens in Mikai 22. I guess we are towards the end of our conversation. I have a sort of visionary question for you. So let's say in a perfect world without much interruption, so you don't have to write uh, grant proposals, you don't have to organize a Mikai conference during a pandemic. 
You don't have to publish papers based on deadlines and you can only focus on one major question and you have a big team to answer that. So what you would like to address? I will address what I'm currently address, which is the end translational research. You can see that I put a lot of efforts to talk about the collaborative mindset, collaborative structure, collaborative process. This is very important for the research we do in order to translate any machine learning algorithm from you know, mathematic formulation to how it applied to the image and how it can be applied and how it can translate it to the clinical practice. Right? This is a very long journey. If we look at this, it's almost like a neural network, right? So you have uh, all the different layers, right? Sometimes multiple layers. And the first few layers, they don't get a chance to talk to the last few layers, never get a chance to talk to the label, which is the physician side, right? So a lot of time is uh, going this way as uh, like a neural network of forward learning. And we also know that strong point for neural networks is back propagation. Yes, it does in the real life. Now, physicians' feedback goes all the way. Sometimes, if it's lucky, get to the first few layers, right? Because there is an enemy called a decreasing or gradient disappearing. Now, in a perfect world that with all the resources and time I have, I would create an end-to-end -end system. So I would have all the disciplines, people working together. So I would have theoretical machine learning person, uh, uh, researcher and students. I would have a biomedical engineering, computer science student and researchers. I would have a clinicians there. I also have industry people. I know that a lot of um, uh, institutes have that, a lot of universities have that. Discipline, but there is a barrier within the system actually disconnected the gradient. Therefore, the gradient does not get it back propagated. So, within one group, it doesn't need to be a lot of people, but with a different background people, that this gradient is going to back propagate smoothly, is able to forward smoothly. And then the clinical question is able to quickly go through the whole system and reach to the theoretical computer science side. And this way, I believe what I call end-to-end -end translational research or integrated research would be able to greatly accelerate the current clinical translation. Because a radical researcher actually often looking for practical problems. They do not have a chance to receive a strong signal from the end side. And our end-to-end -end translation with all the resources we do we are able to accelerate this process and therefore able to move the area much faster. I'm currently doing this part already, and of course, with a very limited resource, but we already see the strength of it. With infinite resource and time, we would be able to actually, within a very short period of time, bring the advanced in machine learning very quickly to, to solve the clinical problem. And we believe that will greatly accelerate the research in our area. 
Yeah, that's indeed a really, really big visionary question. I mean, those of us who are more of the Mikai society, we don't often know that there is this in translational medtech, there is a funny or sad statistics based on your viewpoint. It says like it takes 17 years to bring today's like 14% of today's technology to actually clinical care with a 50% cutoff. That means whoever wants to receive it, they have a point toss chance of actually receiving it. So that's 17 years, 14%, 50% cutoff is a real, real big, massive challenge. I'm really hopeful that if you can, well, you can't put the infinite resources there, you don't have it. But definitely whatever resources you have, if you can put it and really take the translational problem and reimagining it as an engineering, as a machine learning problem and try to solve that would be a significant benefit to the entire community, not just Mikai, but really to add value to the clinics as well. So on that note, thank you so much for the very, very engaging and insightful conversation. We now learned so much from you and about really how the clinical world, how the industry and how the academia interacts. And I'm sure our listeners will benefit a lot from it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really a great honor to talking to everyone. Thank you. All right. And on that, hopefully we see each other in Mikhai 22. Have a wonderful day. See you in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs>